0: Welcome to Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation of The Fan. I'm Dave James. In a moment, we'll present a few minutes from the state's Memorial Day observance at the State House that was held on Friday. Then I'll talk with the head of Trust for America's Health about its annual Pain in the Nation report. Looking at the country's mental health crisis. In about 18 minutes, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, Tracy Townsend covers a number of topics.
1: Coming up on Face the State, back to the polls. The critical conversations that will set the stage for a summer election. And strut that stuff. You could say he helped build the runway for Columbus to become one of the top cities for fashion.
0: She'll also present a segment looking at the teacher shortage. And I'll wrap up the hour talking about housing values with Franklin County Auditor Michael Stenziano and what it means for property taxes that are currently being reappraised. First up on Columbus Perspective, the state held its observance of Memorial Day on Friday at the Ohio State House. We're presenting just about seven or eight minutes of that ceremony, including some comments from Governor Mike DeWine. First, the father of a fallen Marine. Here's Ohio's Secretary of State and veteran, Frank LaRose, introducing him. This segment runs about four and a half minutes.
2: Today, we remember Lance Corporal Jonathan Ederling. Jonathan was a U.S. Marine who was killed while conducting combat operations on January 26, 2005 in Al-Rutba, Iraq. I introduce to you our guest speaker, Gold Star Father, William Ederling.
3: Mr. Ederling? I'll try to keep this as short as possible but how do you sum up a life in a few words I'm honored to be here with mr. governor and wife Fran and all the other dignitaries I am no good at names I apologize if I miss one I'm just a simple country boy I wouldn't be up here if it wasn't for the bravery and the heroism of our son Jonathan was a marine from the get-go stubborn loud opinionated If he didn't get his way as a child, as a young child, he would beat his head in the floor. Definitely a jarhead, but he was tough, and he knew what he wanted to do. I remember at about the age of six, I was walking through the garden with Jonathan and explaining to him how God uses the sun, soil, water, and nutrients to produce food for our uh, table. And he looked at me with a childlike wonder, and he said, God is awesome, isn't he, Daddy? And he carried that with him and the 22 years we had him here on this earth. Even combat couldn't take that away, couldn't shake his faith. In church, school, or sports, he gave 100%. He didn't know how to do less. To give you just an example of how big his heart was, there was a Christmas when he was a junior and a family that was in need had called and I unfortunately didn't have the means to help him at the time. They needed $1,200. And Jonathan was in his room playing a game when I was talking on the phone, and he could hear the regret in my voice as I hung up. And uh, he asked me, what time is it? And I said, well, it's almost 5 o'clock. And he said, well, let me get my shoes on. And I said, why? What's that got to do with it? And he said, well, the bank's going to close at 5. And I said, and once again, what's that got to do with it? And he said, I've got $1,200. Those people need it. And he, well... And he gave him the money. I'm sorry, I didn't mean to choke up. Oh, He went from high school, five days out of high school, with his three best friends to Paris Island. And uh, training was rough. And he would be the first to tell you that. But he was known by his friends at The Rock. And uh, because he was the encourager, he's the one that said, we can do this, no matter how tough it got. On the Saturday, January 22nd, before his passing on the next Wednesday, he had called home. I was fixing breakfast for Kay and I. And he wasn't his usual chatty self. He had called a few times when he could during the bloody fighting in Fallujah. And um, I I asked him after about 15 minutes, I said, John, you're not talking. What's wrong? And I'll never forget. He said, I just wanted to hear your voices. He knew he was going into something. He couldn't tell us. But he knew he was going into deep trouble. And then the following Wednesday, the Marines came to the house to notify us that that he was gone. In a helicopter crash, that killed 31 men. One of those men was Michael Finke. His mother is here today sitting with us, Sally Rapp. And um, we're pleased that you could make it, Sally and Jeff. In closing, freedom has a great price. The Gold Star families here can tell you what that price is. And it's a price that doesn't go away. It's there day after day, week after week, and year after year. And yet the pride is there also. And the love that we feel for our loved ones. And I'm reminded of the quote from the few good men, I believe it was, when the actor Demi Moore was asked, why do you love them so much? And that quote got to me because she said, because they stand on the wall. And they say, don't be afraid. No one will hurt you, not on my watch. And, and America needs to remember that. We need to honor our veterans. And there's a quilt that his colonel and his wife, Colonel Kostick and his wife, brought to our house. It has a beautiful emblem. It has the information of Jonathan on it. And it has a ring around it. And it has a true, very true statement. It says, "The nation that forgets its defenders will itself be forgotten." And if you study history at all, you'll know that is quite true. So I say I love you, Gold Star families. I can honestly say I feel your pain. I also feel your pride. I love our troops. We pray for you. We don't even know you, but we pray for you every day. And we just pray that God will continue to bless America. And we thank you for being here and allowing me to speak. Thank you.
0: That again is William Etterling remembering his son Jonathan from Wheelersburg. Also speaking at the State House on Friday, Governor Mike DeWine. We're presenting just about two and a half minutes of the governor's speech.
4: I want to thank General Harris and also to the men and women of the Ohio National Guard. Uh, every time there is a, a, a crisis, um, whatever that is, in the state of Ohio, whether it's from the pandemic, whether it's a flood, whether it's an ice storm, whatever it is, we deploy the Ohio National Guard. And these men and women leave their normal lives uh, and go do the job and don't finish, don't quit until they're done. Uh, we currently have members of the Ohio National Guard along our southern border um, because that's where they are, in fact, needed. So, General, thank you for your work. But also, if you could convey to the men and women the Guard Uh, We are very, very grateful for what they do. Today, we remember all the brave men and women who died while serving our great nation. We are all truly blessed. We are blessed to live in the land of liberty, the land of opportunity. But we know that those blessings do not come without cost. So to all the Gold Star families with us today and those who are not, We are humbled by your sacrifices as we know they are great and we know the pain is intense. And we commend the demonstrations of courage and strength that you have shown in the most difficult thing that can happen to you in life. We must keep those families and our fallen heroes in our hearts on Monday as we observe Memorial Day. Monday and this weekend is a day that we will have picnics, maybe go to ball games, watch fireworks, who knows, do all kinds of things with our family, and those are all very, very appropriate. But we need to pause. All of us need to pause and remember the real purpose of Memorial Day, and that is to remember those who sacrificed for us. It is right that we honor all fallen heroes and recognize that our liberties as Americans come at a price. And that really is the true, true meaning of Memorial Day and how we can honor those who've gone before us and made that great, great sacrifice. Please say a prayer for our fallen heroes and say a prayer for their loved ones as well. Ohio Governor
0: Mike DeWine speaking Friday at the Ohio State House. Are you dreaming
5: of something greater? A college degree, job skills, a rewarding career, As a member of the Ohio Army National Guard, those dreams can become a reality. The Ohio National Guard Scholarship Program could pay 100% of your college tuition. As a proud member of the Ohio Army National Guard, you're eligible for the scholarship program as soon as you enlist, and you'll become a part of an elite group of men and women who've sworn to serve and protect their community, state, and nation start fulfilling your dreams today with an education that will help you land the career you've always wanted. Learn more about earning your degree debt-free and the many benefits that come with serving in the Ohio Army National Guard. Visit nationalguard.com today. Sponsored by the Ohio Army National Guard, aired by the Ohio Association of Broadcasters and this station. (laughs)
0: This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me, Dr. Nadine Gracia, who is the president and CEO of Trust for America's Health. How are you?
6: I'm doing well, Dave. Thanks. Uh, thanks for the opportunity to speak with you.
0: Thanks for talking to us. What is Trust for America's Health?
6: So trust for America's health we're a non nonprofit nonpartisan public health policy research and advocacy organization, and we work uh, to advance policies that will help to promote optimal health uh, for every person and community and really ensure that uh, prevention and public health are uh, an important part of policy making
0: and you're out with a new report about uh, suicides that has uh, your organization concerned
6: yes that's that's absolutely right you know Dave um, The nation really is in the midst of uh, a mental health crisis uh, that has been ongoing um, really even for the past two decades. And recent reports are are showing that a growing number of Americans are really dealing with uh, growing feelings of sadness and anxiety, uh, of loneliness and, and addiction. Uh, and so uh, we at Trust for America's Health released an annual Pain in the Nation report, which really calls attention uh, to this crisis. We report on the data, and then we also focus attention on the solutions by sharing some of the evidence-based policies and programs uh, that will help to, uh, to really reverse these alarming trends
0: what are some of the uh, statistics or the numbers that you're talking about that are alarming with when it comes to suicide
6: when it comes to Suicide specifically, um, we actually have seen, and and first I'll say the combined rates of of deaths due to alcohol, drug overdose, and suicide actually increased by 11% um, between 2020 and 2021. When you look at suicide specifically, uh, the suicide death rates increased uh, by 4% overall between 2020 and 2021. And where we saw some of the highest increases uh, are in certain populations uh, like youth suicide. So, while... um, the youth suicide rates are lower than the general population. Over the past decade, youth suicide has actually increased by over 70%. We've also seen higher rates of suicide uh, in, among males, in rural areas, uh, in older adults over 75, as well as in the American Indian Alaska Native population.
0: And uh, one of the statistics I see here in 2021, 48,000 Americans died from suicide, and from 2012 to 2021, that 10 year period 450,000 that's just uh, astounding
6: yes and and as we said you know this is as you're seeing really something that has been happening over years and um, you know as noted they're just uh, greater hardships that we're seeing people deal with, you know, whether that's financial and economic hardships, uh, loss of connection and, and and challenges that people may be experiencing in their relationships. Um, we've seen concerns, even rising concerns, for example, among youth um, uh, with regards to social media and, and where there may be benefits to um, having some connection to their peers, but also now worrisome signs um, with regards to the safety of social media and their exposure to bullying or harassment and and, uh, feelings of low self-esteem and how that may be impacting their well being And then also through the COVID-19 pandemic, we saw many of these things be exacerbated, whether that's families who had to deal with job loss and loss of income uh, to also even uh, young people with children who had parents and caregivers who died, over 300,000 uh, youth who lost a parent or a primary or secondary caregiver. And so dealing with that grief and anxiety that exists um, from losing a loved one.
0: Talking with Dr. Nadine Gracia, president and CEO of Trust for America's Health. You know, I hear a lot of, uh, I read a lot of stories these days about uh, loneliness, not only among seniors, which is uh, becoming kind of an epidemic, but also among teens and youth and young adults, uh, you know the the internet has kind of connected everybody, but it also allows you to do just about everything anymore without even having to meet someone face to face.
6: Yeah, that's absolutely right. It, this challenge of loneliness actually is is um, become. Such an important issue, a concerning public health issue that even the U.S. Surgeon General recently released an advisory on uh, loneliness. Um, It is a growing challenge to uh, people's well-being and and increases the risk of people developing uh, mental health challenges, uh, even concerns around premature uh, death. So you know that's that's why with regards to loneliness, it's it's really important. The, the Surgeon General, for example, really outlined um, some key issues in his advisory around addressing loneliness, and that it really requires a multi-sector effort. One that it includes government, it includes um, these digital social media platforms and community organizations, schools, and employers, and and healthcare systems to be able to really foster uh, these types of social connections. Uh, because what we find is that actually, when you have poor or um, uh, social connection, it, it actually can increase your risk of these chronic health conditions like heart disease or stroke or dementia. And even evidence showing that uh, lacking social connection can actually even cr- increase your risk of premature death.
0: So when you look at these uh, epidemics of alcohol, drug, and suicide deaths, what are the solutions that you feel could help?
6: Well, one, you know, that's important because we we actually, we know what works, uh, you know, with regards to policies and proven programs that actually help to prevent uh, these types of deaths. And what we really need to do is have greater investment and attention uh, to these types of programs. We need to certainly be investing in policies and programs that promote health and well-being. Um, that includes, for example, example, bringing in and ensuring that their access to mental health services in schools to be able to help support um, youth uh, and adolescents, uh, that we can have training and programs that provide training in schools on social emotional learning, on teaching teachers and and other staff with regards to um, how to recognize uh, signs of trauma and be able to tap into resources for their students, uh, we should be in further investing uh, in crisis intervention programs. Uh, last year, the 988 suicide and crisis lifeline uh, was launched. Uh, We need ongoing investment in those types of crisis intervention services to be able to get ready access uh, for individuals who are in crisis to those types of services. And then secondly, we should also be really preventing substance misuse and overdose, um, whether that's ensuring, uh, for example, that uh, medications like naloxone that can actually reverse an overdose are easily available in all communities and expanding um, programs like the Drug-Free Communities Program, which helps to provide resources and funding to local communities to be able to develop plans of action to prevent and reduce uh, youth uh, substance use. And then thirdly, um, we should be transforming our mental health and substance misuse treatment system. We have to try to better integrate mental health and substance use treatment and services into other healthcare services so that those services are readily accessible to people who need them. And we should also be making sure that those services really are culturally and linguistically appropriate, especially for diverse communities and, and working to combat stigma as it relates to mental health
0: you know these are such serious problems because coming out of the pandemic we've got staffing issues for you know the healthcare industry uh, both in in physical healthcare and mental and you know we're just going to need uh, so many more people as baby boomers age it just seems like it's going to get worse before it gets better
6: you're, you're absolutely right that that the workforce shortages that we're seeing in the healthcare workforce, and that's both uh, for for physical health issues as well as behavioral health and the mental health and substance use issues, are are significant and challenging. We also have workforce shortages in public health with our local and state health departments, which provide critical linkages, for example, these community clinical linkages to be able to help support uh, individuals who are in need. And so part of the recommendations too is that having greater investment as well to be able to strengthen that pipeline of workers into behavioral health. There have been important steps that uh, the Biden-Harris administration has taken, that Congress has taken with regards to providing additional resources to strengthen that pipeline of a workforce. We need to ensure that that funding continues and that it's sustained because that's going to be a longer-term issue for us, but also even empowering and providing resources to communities so that you can have a community-based workforce of community health workers and others that can do direct outreach in community, help support individuals who might need help navigating the healthcare system to get access to the care that they need.
0: Dr. Nadine Gracia, she's the president and CEO of Trust for America's Health. Where can folks find out more information, doctor?
6: Yes, you can come to our website at Trust for America's Health. It's uh, tifa.org, that's T-F-A-H.org, and you can access the Pain in the Nation report. Great.
0: Uh, Thanks so much for your information today. I appreciate it.
1: Thank you. Appreciate the opportunity.
0: This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan.
1: A dash to democracy coming up on Face the State. Lawmakers and poll workers are getting election preps into high gear. But there's a legal battle that could grind everything to a halt. We'll explain. As intel breaks ground, promising jobs, there's still a heartbreaking reality in Licking County. We'll show you how hunger remains a concern and what schools are doing to help. And carrying the load with Memorial Day, we will show you what's being done to honor our veterans right here in Columbus. Face the State starts now.
0: Courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10-TV, here's Tracy Townsend from her Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10-TV.
1: Good morning, everyone. Thank you so much for joining us here on Face the State. I'm Tracy Townsend. Processes are moving forward and ramping up this morning for the August election. The Ohio Ballot Board met to prescribe ballot language and work through the constitutional amendment proposed by the General Assembly. Lawmakers passed a joint resolution last week, which leaves it to voters to decide whether a 60 percent supermajority should be required to make changes to the state's constitution. The law currently states a 50 percent plus one vote threshold to amend the constitution. My
2: motion is that uh, we would authorize my office to contract for the required advertising of the statewide issue and to authorize my office to request the controlling board for transfer of sub, uh, sufficient funds for that purpose.
1: The Franklin County Board of Elections is now recruiting more than 4,000 poll workers and reaching out to more than 300 polling locations. But there are several organizations arguing that the election violates election law and they filed suit but at this point the timeline is set here are three key dates for you the last day to register to vote is july 10th early voting will begin on july 11th and then the election itself is august 8th political analysts are already looking ahead to future elections this opinion piece in the columbus dispatch raised questions about whether senator brown will be able to hold on to his seat so we asked him about it
2: I don't pay attention to stories like that. My focus is always on Ohio workers. It always has been my whole career standing up to China on bad trade policy. Uh, my focus has is, is been on veterans. I sit on the Veterans Committee, the most nonpartisan committee in the Senate. And uh, we've we've passed the PACT Act. I'm going to every county, eventually every county in the state, to encourage veterans to sign up for this. The PACT Act says that any veteran, expo- any of our of our men and women in uniform who are exposed to these football field-sized burn pits um, in Iraq and Afghanistan and wherever they're serving, that they get treatment at the Columbus uh, ch- uh, why, uh, the Columbus um, VA. Uh, they get treatment at any VA they want to go, f- go to. My focus will always be that uh, and will continue to be. Yes.
1: Ohio's other U.S. Senator, oh, J.D. F- Vance, is taking the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank to task on Capitol Hill. He took aim at the bonuses that were given during the collapse.
7: What were the amounts of your cash bonuses in 2021, do you recall? 2021, I believe, was $3 million. And your cash bonus in 2022 was? $1.5 So in 2022 in particular, you paid yourself a $1.5 million cash bonus, even as the stock, the value of the company that you were managing declined by two-thirds. That's not bad work if you can get it. As uh, Senator Kramer and I were joking, uh, we would be willing to screw something up for much less than $1.5 million. <laughs> um, the stock price fell in 2022, so it's pretty clear the cash bonus was still $1.5 million despite SVB's stock falling by two-thirds that same year. Now, do you think it's appropriate to pay yourself $1.5 million when the stock of the company you manage declines by 65%? Senator, the two points to your question first Please. is that the um, determination of my compensation is made by the board of directors and their assessment, and the second part relating to this question on stock— I held roughly five times the amount of stock that I was required to, and so clearly I was impacted when the stock price declined. So, Mr. Becker, you say that the decision was made by the board of directors, so let's focus on them. Do you think that they were wise to award you $1.5 million in cash compensation bonus when the decline of the stock price was 65-plus percent? Senator, I believe they looked at the performance against the goals that were set up.
1: Columbus is now named a workforce hub by the Biden-Harris administration. One of the main drivers comes from what's being built in Licking County. Yes, Intel. Columbus is one of five cities to receive the recognition. It's a new initiative aimed at connecting American workers to jobs to help meet growing workforce demands. 10TV's Carly Dion has more on what this could bring to Central Ohio's future.
8: Heather Boucher is a member of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisers and chief economist for his investing in America cabinet.
6: Columbus has emerged as a center of investment.
8: Boucher says Columbus was named as a workforce hub, primarily for its partnership with Intel and the Ohio Semiconductor Collaboration Network to develop a two-year program to train workers in the semiconductor field. And this is in fact now
1: a model for other places across the country. And that's exactly what these workforce hubs are about.
8: The hubs are a new way to support filling jobs created through federal funding, which includes legislation like the Chips and Science Act, signed into law last August. It will provide a more than $50 billion boost to the U.S. semiconductor industry. Intel wouldn't have
2: happened without the Chips Act.
8: Columbus Mayor Ginther says that funding will in part support Intel's plan to bring semiconductor manufacturing facilities to Licking County, which is expected to bring 20,000 jobs to the state. Now, the administration will partner with state and local officials, employers, unions, community colleges, high schools, and other stakeholders to ensure a diverse and skilled workforce can meet that demand. Really trying to
2: make sure that Columbus State uh, is leading the way uh, for opening doors for Columbus residents, particularly young people that are coming out of Columbus City Schools, to take advantage of some of these great opportunities.
8: Boucher says the administration also acknowledges Columbus's effort to pioneer a Model to diversify its registered apprenticeships, which she says is now being replicated across the country.
1: So it was a, it was a good place to come and, and try to develop models and collaborate together to do so.
8: Carly Dion, 10TV News.
1: And our community is changing to keep up with this incoming investment. Mayors of several Central Ohio cities met at the Columbus Metropolitan Club, and they went over the key strategies they're preparing for for the facilities now being built in Licking County. The primary concerns by some county and city leaders are, can we keep up? The key areas are housing, transportation, and schools.
4: We pay for almost 100 percent of our school district, not only the construction, but the operation. And so every time that we start a housing start, we need to carefully
1: consider how it impacts our school district. Intel broke ground on the project back in September. The first plant is set to be finished by the year 2025. And as Licking County does prepare for Intel, many families there are finding it harder to make ends meet as inflation raises grocery prices. While Intel grabs most of the headlines about moving to Licking County, keeping up with the demand for hunger is often a hidden issue. And as 10TV's Kevin Landers found out, the need goes well beyond food.
9: So this started probably roughly about 10 years ago. A group of teachers decided that, you know, we have kids in need and we need to think about ways to support them. You're
10: looking at a food pantry inside Licking Valley High School.
9: Food's expensive and these are our neediest kids
10: kids in need of food but it's not just beans and tuna fish. Sometimes it's a lot more.
9: For a teenager especially a teenage boy to say hey I'm hungry or hey do you have any deodorant like that takes a lot. And so we've used pantry funds to run to Walmart buy a air mattress and sheets and send them home with a inflatable bed so they have some place to sleep that night.
10: Everything you see on these shelves is donated. Anyone who asks for food gets two boxes that can last a month.
9: We're currently serving about 20 six families a month. Uh, that doesn't maybe sound off the top like a large number, but when you consider that in our building every day we have about 525 students, and that is probably about 50 students that are getting food to take home. So we're feeding about 10% of our student body.
10: The school says 40% of its student body qualifies for free and reduced lunch, but provides every student with a free meal so no one goes hungry.
9: when You see news about in Inflation. you see news about struggles around people getting jobs and things like that and then we actually have faces to put with the names.
10: Organizers say many of the families they serve are two-income households and yet they still struggle to put food on the table.
9: We've had families that are having utilities shut off.
10: The pantry recently added a washer and dryer so kids can have clean clothes. There's a fridge and freezer to provide fresh fruit and meat. Say Ten years ago this pantry started in a closet.
9: This has grown into something we could not have imagined 10 years ago.
10: As more families struggle to make ends meet, workers say they may need more room in the future so kids who come to class don't arrive with empty stomachs.
9: At the end of the day, we're here for these kids.
10: Kevin Landers, 10TV News.
1: The school also operates a food pantry for its elementary and middle schools. It recently added a drive-up window for parents so children don't have to carry the food in their backpacks. The Ohio State Board of Trustees is taking issue with a statehouse proposal. At the same time, lawmakers are moving it forward. We'll show you the arguments on both sides.
9: Welcome Dr. Angela Chapman back to the stage.
1: And the interim becomes the permanent. What's next for the leader of Columbus City Schools? And fashion first, meet the man whose skill and style helped put Columbus on the map.
0: Columbus Perspective is a public affairs presentation of WBNS Radio. The opinions expressed on this program are those of its guests and do not necessarily reflect those of WBNS Radio, its staff, management, or sponsors. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV. Welcome Dr. Angela
1: Chapman back to the stage. Columbus City Schools has selected its next leader, Dr. Angela Chapman. The interim superintendent now set to officially take over that top administrative role for the largest school district in our state. The Ohio Senate has passed legislation making major changes to higher education. We're following this with our partners at The Dispatch. The Republican-controlled Senate voted 21 to 10 to restrict mandatory diversity training, ban faculty strikes, and penalize professors who fail to create classrooms they describe as free from bias. The House will take up that measure soon. The Ohio Board of Trustees, Ohio State Board of Trustees rather, sent a rare rebuke of this legislation, writing in part we acknowledge the issues raised by this proposal, but believe there are alternative solutions that will not undermine the shared governance model of universities, risk weakened academic rigor, or impose extensive and expensive new reporting mandates. Again, that's part of a statement from the Ohio State University Board of Trustees. Last weekend, the verified team took us inside classrooms around the country to hear from teachers who say they are burned out, fed up, and hanging on by a thread. In part two of our Verify in Focus special, we look at what's being done to get more teachers into the classroom.
11: A crisis is growing in America's K through 12 schools.
7: We're losing teachers faster than we can get new ones in.
11: According to the data from the National Center for Education Statistics, the percent of college grads earning a bachelor's degree in education is roughly half of what it was in 1970, dropping from more than 170,000 to less than 90,000 in 2019. Coupled with high rates of early retirement and stress-induced career changes, the teacher pool is drying up.
2: I mean, it's a crisis in my opinion. It's not going to get better without taking some intentional uh, steps. to to make it better
11: so who's going to teach america's children that question has school districts lawmakers universities and educational organizations scrambling to find answers before it's too late one strategy at least at the state level has been lowering standards and lowering requirements for entry into teaching that's heather pesky president of the national council on teacher quality In addition to having a bachelor's degree, most states used to require teachers to pass a teaching certification exam before being allowed to teach. But since 2020, Pesky says at least 12 states have removed or lowered the requirements for teachers to get that certification. Meaning in places like Alabama and Missouri, even if teaching candidates don't pass the state exam, they could still be given a license to teach. A change that Tanya Chestnut, a board member for Alabama State Board of Education, justified by saying, When you're in a crisis, you tend to do things you probably would not ordinarily do. I think this will definitely bring some relief without compromising the quality of education. High school English teacher Violeta Duran and middle school instructional coach Evan Shin aren't as optimistic. They worry lowering standards will result in students getting an underqualified teacher. I think there is a danger in that
12: we are just putting people in classrooms that are not uh, credentialed or who are not uh, ready to be in the classroom. But because of the fact that we're looking for a warm body, um, we are saying like, oh, okay, well, good enough.
11: But Pesky says it's not enough. This will result in a less effective teacher workforce. And that's the opposite of what our students need, particularly now on the heels of this pandemic. University of Pennsylvania professor Richard Ingersoll has studied teachers and their working conditions for more than 20 years. He says these desperate measures of lowering standards to teach will only make more teachers leave the profession.
2: Generally, the less prepared people, the emergency and temporary licenses, for instance, that are issued, Those
11: people quit at higher rates. His research already showed that nearly half of teachers with proper training leave the profession within the first five years. Nonprofit organizations are also scrambling to find solutions to the teacher shortage crisis. Transcend is a nonprofit that works with schools to test innovative ways to help teachers enter and stay in the profession. They say they've seen success elevating people from non-teaching roles, like coaches and parents, into teaching roles for the short term to ease the burden on existing teachers. Steve Carlin, a former superintendent in the rural Garden City School District in southwest Kansas, had a similar idea 15 years ago. Back then, Carlin says his open teaching positions were mostly in high school math and science classes. To fill those roles, he'd take elementary school teacher candidates that he didn't have classrooms for and pay for their training and then put them in those high school classrooms. And that worked until 2016. But then the teaching shortages became so problematic that...
2: We haven't been able to utilize that strategy because we can't even fill all of our elementary classrooms.
11: So Carlin dipped into his pool of substitute teachers to fill those roles. But now
2: the pool is completely dry.
11: While schools are trying to find ways to fill their vacancies, the federal government is trying to address teacher shortages with money. Let's give public school teachers a raise. Two proposals in Congress aim to do just that. The Paid Teachers Act, introduced by Senator Bernie Sanders in March, and the American Teacher Act, introduced by Representative Frederica Wilson in the House in February. If passed, they would set a minimum starting salary of $60,000 for all U.S. public school teachers. A big jump from the national average starting salary of 41770 in the 2020 to 2021 school year. Neither bill has been voted on, but bipartisan support for both is growing. As of April 2023, the Senate bill is backed by seven co-sponsors and has the support of more than 50 major education organizations, while the House bill has more than 50 co-sponsors. There's also money for teachers baked into legislation passed during the pandemic. In March 2021, the American Rescue Plan Act allocated $130 billion to K-12 schools. The White House says schools can use that money to invest in teacher pipeline programs, increase teacher salaries, and hire more teachers. The U.S. Departments of Education and Labor issued a joint statement to state lawmakers and administrators, urging them to use this relief money to specifically increase pay for teachers. But Duran says that isn't happening at her school. She says schools are hesitant to spend the money on long-term investments because they worry the aid will eventually run out, leaving schools with salaries they can't afford to pay. But money doesn't have to come from the federal government or go to the schools directly. The University of Wisconsin Madison School of Education is using private funding from alumni and supporters to incentivize more people to become teachers. We're saying to any student who wants to come into any of our 15 different teacher education programs that we will pay the cost of their tuition their testing fees and their licensing fees. She says in exchange, the students must pledge to teach in Wisconsin public schools for three to four years. The $25 million privately funded program launched in August of 2020 also offers mentorship and professional development support for alums. Support from a program that former teacher Sarah Coise wishes she had during the early years of her teaching.
9: I think there's a lot of support for first year teachers. And I think people think, oh, after your second or third year, you're good to go. You're a pro. But I think that
11: those supports need to stay in place. Duran, who teaches in Southern California, says she'd like to see Wisconsin's pledge program be adopted by more schools.
9: I see it as a positive, like any program that can do that. I mean, it would be great if, you know, UCLA could do that or USC.
11: So what do current teachers think will help inspire others to join this career path? For a long time, high school teacher Joaquin Rodriguez says passion alone was what sparked that interest. But now...
12: When you have that burnout and that fatigue, that passion piece is the first thing to go.
11: Educators like Rodriguez, Shin and Duran say they're still hanging on. And when they ask themselves why they're still doing this... At the end of the day, it's the students. There's an energy that they bring
9: that is unmatched. Even just showing care and concern from students sometimes, that is enough to kind of be like, okay, we're going to be okay.
1: Still ahead
11: on Face of the State. Today I'm actually carrying the load for um, six Air Force service members that um, unfortunately didn't come back with us while I was there in Afghanistan. How you can
1: still honor your family's hero with one week until Memorial Day.
0: Thanks for listening. This is Columbus Perspective on the Fan. Back to Tracy Townsend, courtesy of 10TV.
1: Hundreds marched across the city of Columbus, part of a nationwide relay to honor fallen veterans. The march is run by Carry the Load, a nonprofit that connects Americans with veterans, first responders, and their families. Columbus, just one stop along a 20,000 mile journey. Participants walk and bike across 48 states in 32 days.
6: It's very emotional, I I fight back
11: tears the whole time to to hear the stories and what this means and I think uh, what it means to our fellow service members, what it means to the families of those that have fallen that are also here today. Uh, It brings up a lot of emotion um, and I'm really happy that something like this exists.
1: That's Crystal Sorensen. She's a retired captain in the army. She served in Afghanistan and she honored service members she served with but did not make it home. Carry the Load's goal is to raise 2 and a quarter million dollars for military and veteran families. You can still honor your family member or loved one on the Carry the Load website. The man with the plan for fashion, small business development, and launching Columbus to its cutting-edge style status is moving on. Thomas McClure launched Fashion Week 14 years ago in our town. It's taken off from the runway to its own high-profile destination in downtown Columbus. That's seven shops on South 3rd Street. I talk with McClure about the journey and what's next.
12: Fashion speaks to all of us. It's a universal language.
1: Thomas McClure is a master translator and transformer. But I mean, look at this. Taking Columbus from a capital city in 2010 to its current status as a capital of style. Back then,
12: 2010, there really wasn't a fashion scene. Really, not nothing at all except for highball Halloween, which I love highball Halloween, right? Couture costumes. But nothing was specifically industry-related.
1: The founder and executive director of the non-profit Columbus Fashion yeah. Council this is credited with changing that, creating a you know, platform and marketing space to help launch local designers, which eventually helped land the attention of the high-profile Council of Fashion Designers of America.
12: Let's drop a few names. Andy Wintour used to be the president of that board. Tom Ford, just, you know, his term was up. Now it's Tom Brown. These are big names in the fashion world. They came to Columbus. They came to Fashion Week Columbus last year. They came back again this year for the Business of Fashion Roundtable.
1: The elements of style created a pattern for profit. Wow. McClure and his team collaborated with city developers in opening Columbus's first fashion and retail district called Common Thread. Once a row of empty stores, now it's the stop for the stylish. We implanted six to seven
12: small businesses, all designers who have showcased at Fashion Week Columbus, who are members of the Columbus Fashion Council, and they opened up their own boutiques. Now, it is the only place in Columbus you can go to where you know that you're shopping completely local.
1: After years of success hemmed up in Columbus, McClure is moving on, but not far from fashion.
12: I have a schedule of fashion shows I'm producing, but what I really want to do is I want to take the blueprint that I created for Fashion Week Columbus and show other cities that don't have Fashion Week how to do it.
1: Translating that universal language forward, weaving together community and business to make a statement of culture. Now the search for a new executive director is underway. The mission, though, remains the same as the Columbus Fashion Council provides scholarships to student designers in addition to serving as, again, that platform for local and emerging designers. Well, we certainly have appreciated having you with us today, and we wish you a great week.
0: That's again Tracy Townsend, courtesy of our sister station, WBNS 10 TV, from their Sunday morning public affairs program, Face the State. A new edition can be seen this morning at 1130 on 10 TV. This is Columbus Perspective on The Fan. Hi, this is Dave James, and on the phone with me, Michael Stenziano, who is the Franklin County Auditor. How are you?
13: I'm outstanding. Uh, Good to be with
0: you. Thanks for talking to us. Uh, The auditor's office is truly an interesting, kind of fascinating office because you folks do a lot more than I think a lot of people realize.
13: We touch uh, and impact the lives of Franklin County residents every day. And the good news is, as you pointed out, they may not know it, uh, but we uh, run from the fiscal side uh, to consumer protection to property values.
0: Yeah, everything from, of course, property values are, are the one I think a lot of people think of, but weights and measures, dog licenses even. So,
13: so the, the adage is that we assume when the General Assembly was uh, assigning a number of responsibilities, the auditors weren't in the room, because you're correct. Uh, <laughs> we are a mile wide in terms of duties and responsibilities, and uh work hard to make sure they're all meeting the needs of the businesses and residents throughout the county.
0: And uh, when it comes to property reappraisals, 2023 is a very important year.
13: Absolutely. So under Ohio law, every six years, uh, auditors' offices are required to perform a mass reappraisal. And so what that means for Franklin County property owners this year is every property, of about 450000 across the county, will be reassessed and reassigned a audit valuation. Uh, and that's important for a lot of factors. Uh, the mo- one we hear the most about, though, is how it correlates to property taxes. And so we want all property owners to be aware this is a mass reappraisal year to work with our office to make sure we get the most fair and accurate values we can.
0: So you have a team. Uh, do you go around and actually look and then photograph the properties, or how do you do it? What do you do?
13: In, in a mass reappraisal year, we do go out to each parcel. Uh, there's photography, uh, there's flyovers, and then there are individuals that go out and look at the characteristics, uh, do their appraisal measurements. We do not go inside any properties. And so that's why the information uh, we glean from other resources, real estate listings, Uh, A number of other kind of trade documents is so important, but also the property owner's involvement, making sure that the information we have about their property uh, is correct. So number of bathrooms, square footage, chimneys, all will factor in into the uh, appraised value that's released this August.
0: If somebody has the classic six foot privacy fence around their backyard, do you peek over the fence to see what's going on in the backyard or how do you do that?
13: We do not. That's when we rely on the other tools uh, that we have uh, with geospatial imagery and kind of being able to lean in with the technology that's available uh, these days.
0: But it really is a a huge undertaking, over 400,000 properties, you said?
13: It it is a large county with a lot of properties. Uh, So it's a project that we've spent about two years Uh, leading up to it's not one we just woke up on january 1st of this year to undertake Uh, but what is important is for the past two years now this year looking at what sales in our community have looked like it has been a very hot market Uh, we are really in a kind of perfect storm with our population growth but our decades long lack of housing meeting that population growth and with some changes in state law outside investments uh, we are looking at historic increases yeah, a
0: lot of houses, it seems, are worth a good $100,000 more now than they were six or eight years ago.
13: You're correct. Uh, we have had a really hot real estate market. And while maybe the number of sales is not as hot, and, you know, about two years ago, things weren't even on the market a whole day. Uh, on average, they're about two and a half, three weeks on the market. But people are still offering significantly higher value than what a sale uh, would have been six, eight. A decade ago.
0: So, if somebody's property is worth, let's say, forty percent more than it was five years ago, or so, or the last time that the reappraisal took place, does that mean that they might expect a property tax increase in that neighborhood?
13: Oh, that's the that's the big question, uh, and, and one we are prepared for this year. Uh, we are going to have a tool available in August where any property owner can look at what the increased value may. Uh, correlate to their property taxes. You have scenarios so our auditor's valuation is one piece of how we establish uh, property taxes in Ohio. Uh, And when you get that property tax bill from the treasurer's office, not the auditor's office. Uh, The other piece is uh, one's taxing district. And so what voters do at the ballot box uh, on bonds and levies with that appraised value is how we get to that property tax. And so there are scenarios where your property value can go up, taxes go down, your property value could go down, your taxes could go up. Uh, It's really going to depend on that taxing district. And so we're going to have this tool in August uh, where you can look at the historical impact of your taxing district, correlate it to what the proposed value is, and see what impact, if any, could have in changing your property taxes property taxes uh, aren't a one-to-one proposition under Ohio law. So while the value goes up and you want your property value to go up, uh, not down, uh, it will not be, if there's a 30% increase, you're not going to see a 30% increase in your property
0: taxes. When you look at a neighborhood, you know, you can type in addresses and see what other people's property in your neighborhood is also appraised at. And sometimes one house might go up, And the house next to it might go down how does that happen and what what are you looking for that causes that
13: so we're always looking at an arm's length transaction uh and our office appraisers are always kind of keen to there's different dynamics at play if maybe it was a family transaction and so trying to understand what occurred with each sale the best we can uh When we do the mass reappraisal, we'll create delineated neighborhoods looking for similar characteristics, square footage, updates, and have our proposed appraised value uh, reflect that. Uh, The good news is property owners play an important role throughout this process. Uh, Currently, they can complete a neighborhood survey, or we encourage all property owners to come to the auditor's website, frankincountyauditor.com, and make sure that characteristics of the home are accurate and then once they receive the tenant of value this august they can uh, set up a informal property review and work with us further if they feel the value is inaccurate because maybe they feel it's being compared to an outlier higher or lower sale
0: talking with the franklin county auditor michael Stinziano, if you uh have you know overgrown weeds or you know a tree that looks like it's ready to fall over or a fence that's falling apart Can that impact the reappraisal process, and could it impact your neighbor's value?
13: So it should not. Uh, One of the stories I share is someone once contacted me about snakes in their grass and mold in their fridge (laughs) and felt the value we proposed was too much given the uh, circumstances. That's not what we're going to be looking at. Um, If there is damage or destroyed property, that does have an impact. Uh, and there's a process where we can capture that and encourage anyone that may have uh, be a storm, a fire, or some other damage to short property to reach out to the auditor's office as well. Uh, but, but we tr- take as even keel look as we can with our delayed neighborhoods, understanding different factors. But weed, uh, a tree that may look like it's going to fall down until it actually damages the property, would not factor into our valuation.
0: Now, toward the end of summer, then, you'll send out notices uh, letting folks know what the value of the home is going to be uh, appraised at. But that is changeable for some people, right?
13: So where we're at uh, in August on the uh, Know Your Home Value website, that'll be your one-stop shop for all Franklin County property owners to understand uh, the rest of the appraisal process, what's going to happen this year. You can look up your property and see your tentative value as what the Auditor's Office is recommending. Uh, we will also n- mail notification, uh, but as you mentioned, in September, a property owner can set up an informal property review meeting and work with our office, either in a virtual setting or in person, uh, to share where they feel the value is too high or too low and why. And that's additional information we appreciate to help establish a fair and accurate valuation.
0: And from what I understand, many times the value does change after that, right?
13: Depending on uh, the year and the circumstances. So when we went through the triennial two, three years ago, so in 2020, uh, we actually saw a lot of no changes just because the market was so hot. Uh, we we want and anticipate hearing from a lot of property owners and want to work with them to make sure we've got the, the information accurate and we're properly reflecting uh, the valuation that's. Proper for
0: their neighborhood. I wanted to ask you just real quick, too, about property taxes in general. Of course, it's been controversial in Ohio for decades because of how it's connected to school funding and was found unconstitutional in, in uh, you know, the Supreme Court and all that. But a big concern these days is with property values escalating, that the property taxes are going to, especially seniors, perhaps force them out of their neighborhoods because their property taxes have become too high, even if their house is paid off
13: biggest concerns in the auditor's office and that I share is the feedback and concern that individuals feel they're going to be property taxed out of their neighborhood. It's something we heard early on. It was actually at a housing forum hosted by Congresswoman Joyce Beatty. And so we are very committed to making sure folks understand how property taxes are established. Uh, It's not easy to always understand, uh, but have advocated uh, over the, uh, the past four years for changes to modernize and not have property taxes increase above a certain percentage. So a little more predictability, uh, as you mentioned, it does serve as the primary funding mechanism for local schools and a whole host of other entities Uh, that provide wonderful services across the county. Uh, Unfortunately, that legislation uh, has not been taken up. Uh, It's had a couple hearings. Senator Herschel Craig has been a great champion in partnering with us across the county. Uh, But the members of the General Assembly currently have pending legislation where they are seeking to maybe change the tax structure. And key to that is what impact any changes would have On property taxes and so there's a little bit of to be continued but if any resident uh, be it a older resident or anyone feels and has questions about what's going to happen in their neighborhood with the value increases our office is committed to working with them have them understand the process and uh, there's definitely programs within the treasurer's office and across the county that may be available as a solution as well
0: I think the Homestead Exemption Act in Ohio was kind of watered down a while back, many years ago, but do you see perhaps uh, any work down the line in readjusting that and making it more significant than it is now?
13: exemption is another area where we're very supportive of modernizing. Uh, there has been multiple pieces of legislation introduced at the General Assembly uh, to change uh, the threshold for qualification, as you alluded to. Uh, maybe not watered down, but the change of adding age with an income threshold has definitely resulted in less older residents being able to take advantage of the homestead. Uh, a few governors ago, it was not age and income it was just age and so we saw a lot of ohioans take advantage Uh, that continues to dwindle as ohioans get older Uh, i think there were eight pieces of legislation last general assembly that were trying to up and modernize the homestead exemption and i know there's already been one introduced this general assembly Uh, so very supportive of finding a solution for residents to get the benefit of the bargain if you will that the general assembly intended when they created and administered the homestead exemption
0: just a moment or two to go here with uh, Franklin County Auditor Michael Stenziano. Do you have any sense on what's going to happen down the line with home values? Do you think that this reappraisal is going to be more painful than the next one?
13: <laughs> uh, I, I, so painful is a tough word. Uh, this one is probably going to be one of the more historic. Uh, just given how hot the real estate market is, our population growth, uh, and the historic lack of housing options, uh, we're in a kind of a perfect storm, as well as attracting great economic opportunities with different bigger projects. That is something that these values are reflective of. Uh, again, having the value increase is something we all want. You don't want to see that value decrease, uh, but recognize and are very sensitive to the concern it has in people's pocketbooks and what the correlations of the property taxes are. And so we're working very hard to educate folks until that housing gets caught up with the growth, it will continue uh, to be, in my estimation, a very hot real estate market. But we will continue to watch it and update accordingly.
0: And I guess, you know, it's kind of a growing pain thing, too. I mean, when you look at Intel coming in on the northeast side, obviously that's going to have an impact in that area. but. That's what happens when your big city grows up, I guess, right?
13: So that has been some of the responses. We've communicated with members of the public. They feel maybe we've been a little
0: behind of becoming that big city, and this is a reflection of that movement forward. Michael Stenziano, Franklin County Auditor, with us. Uh, if folks want more information, what's the best thing for them to do, Michael?
13: Uh, visit the Franklin County Auditor's website, Auditor, uh, FranklinCountyAuditor.com. Uh, or they can always email me, Auditor Stenziano at Ohio.gov, And we're happy to answer any and all questions and get you accurate information as quickly as possible.
0: Auditor Stenziano, thanks so much for your time today. Sure appreciate it. Thank you. This has been Columbus Perspective, a weekly public affairs presentation to the fan. Heard each Sunday morning at 6 on WBNS-AM. That's 1460 ESPN Columbus. And Sunday morning at 7 on WBNS-FM. Sports Radio 97.1 The Fan. Join us again next Sunday for Columbus Perspective.